Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Women's War, a production of iHeartRadio. What would you do if the government was just gone one day? A couple of months ago, that question might have seemed more like a fantasy than it does right now. As I type this, huge parts of the United States are in lockdown from the coronavirus. Millions of Americans are out of work. Gun stores across the nation have sold out of ammunition. Grocery stores are out of toilet paper. Collapse right now seems more plausible than it ever has before, perhaps even imminent. And depending on what movies and TV you watch, you might expect the retreat of your government to bring chaos and violence in its wake. But that is far from a foregone conclusion. In 2012, as the Syrian civil war heated up, the soldiers and secret police of the dictatorial Assad regime pulled out of northeastern Syria. The men and women who lived there took this opportunity to build something new over the ashes of the old. As the world order we've all grown up with frays and crumbles, their story holds lessons for us all. The woman you're about to hear from is a Syrian militiawoman named Afrin Masso. I met her in July 2019 at a training camp in the Syrian desert. If you ask the Turkish government, Afrin and her comrades are all terrorists. If you ask many of the people in northeast Syria, they are saviors. And if you listen to the mainstream media over in the United States, they're just the Kurds. As I write this, Afrin and her comrades are fighting and perhaps dying for their revolution, a women's revolution. Throughout history, the first city-states were built on the basis of exploiting the woman. If we go back to history, we see that it was the women who created everything. In natural societies, before the rise of city-states, women were leaders. But after the system of city-states was built up by men, they began oppressing women for the first time in history. Throughout the last 4,000 years, a system has been built up over the woman. It doesn't allow her to work, to go outside, to take up the gun. Even in her own home, she is not allowed to express her opinion. Even when you get married and should live a shared life, you cannot express your own opinion. You aren't free to say what you want. 
Our goal is to bring an end to this mentality. We don't say that women should take a higher position than men. Our goal is equality between women and men, to make it possible that our society can live with a free mentality. Neither women nor men should be the oppressor. There should be equality. The land in which Afrin and her comrades live and struggle is called Rojava. The word means West in Kurmaji, Kurdish, the language of most of its inhabitants. But Afrin's comrades are not all Kurds. They are Arabs and Armenians and Yazidis, as well as Brits, Americans, Spaniards, and Germans. The Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, are the umbrella organization they fight under. But Afrin is a member of the Women's Protection Units, or YPJ, an all-female militia. You've probably seen videos and pictures of their fighters, beautiful young women bedecked in colorful kefias, riding into battle against the Islamic State. Such images made for easy, feel-good coverage in a region where those stories are hard to come by. But then the caliphate lost its last territorial holdings. And over the months, the news spent less and less time talking about the Kurds and Rojava, until, in winter 2019, this happened. Now to that breaking news in the fight against ISIS, the White House withdrawing troops from a key part of Syria as Turkey plans an attack on U.S.-backed forces there. Turkish forces have begun a major offensive in northeastern Syria with airstrikes. This evening, the streaks of artillery lit the sky of this border town, the Turkish army hitting Kurdish targets just inside Syria. What we're seeing here, here Sarah, is arguably one of the greatest betrayals um, in the history of, of military uh, in, in military history. The Turkish invasion of Rojava, ironically named Operation Peace Spring, immediately displaced 200,000 people. Hundreds of thousands more would be made refugees by the end of 2019. As majority Kurdish towns on the Turkish border were cleared out by military force, the government of Turkey bussed in Syrian Arab refugees in a bid to permanently change the demographics of the region. Western media coverage touched on some of this, but nothing piqued as much fear in American and European viewers as the threat that the chaos in Rojava might allow for a resurgence of ISIS. A senior U.S. defense official just told CNN Turkey's attacks are already hurting the U.S. counter-ISIS operations, effectively bringing it to a halt. Nick, what are you hearing there on the ground about what the attacks mean for the resurgence of ISIS? A Turkish shell slams into an ISIS prison compound. Moments later, ISIS prisoners are seen making a break for it. Kurdish forces already stretched too thin warned us they'd struggle to contain ISIS detainees if Turkey attacked. And that's more or less the story everybody knows. Kurds fighting ISIS, then Turkey, then Turkey and ISIS. There was a lot of talk about Trump betraying the Kurds, but very little talk about what those Kurds were really fighting for. If you listen to the mainstream media's telling of events, you might think their ambitions extended no further than beating ISIS. But the Kurds of northeast Syria and their allies weren't just fighting ISIS. In fact, many of them considered the battle against the Islamic State to be just a side effect of the real fight, a war against the authoritarian virus at the heart of both ISIS and the dictatorial regime of Turkish President Erdogan. The people I met in Rojava believe the path to victory in this war the only way to achieve true peace is to strike at the heart of authoritarianism, the domination of women by men. The next woman you're about to hear from is Horiam Shamid. She's a feminist, anti-capitalist community organizer in Rojava. She lost a son in the fight against ISIS, but she does not consider Islamic militants to be her number one enemy. 
Women have been suffocated in society by the politics of the Syrian state. Their rights have been limited, and this mentality has suffocated them. So they are scared to resist, to resist against the oppression around them, to rise up and say, this is my right, I exist. We have difficulties with this. ISIS were well known throughout the world. They were a barbarous enemy, not just for women, but for all people. But women also have hidden enemies around them. Oppressive men, customs, practices, economic repression, hidden things. Women struggle in secret. What I found in Rojava in the summer of 2019 was so much stranger and so much more revolutionary than the battle against ISIS or the insurgent campaign against Turkey. This is the story of the war in Syria you have not seen on the news. The story of an idealistic dream that had the unlikely chance to flower in the dry, flame-wracked plains of northeast Syria. I'm Robert Evans, and this is The Women's War. I first heard about Rojava in 2014 through a series of half-credible far-left blog posts and social media posts. The picture they painted was of an anarchist feminist utopian project in Syria, fundamentally reforming society at the same time as it led the fight against ISIS. It all sounded way too good to be true, and I was instantly suspicious. What I was reading about Rojava was so lacking in actual detail that it felt more like fan fiction than real reportage. And so I dipped in and out of the story. It became gradually clear that something significant was happening in Rojava, but it was hard to tell what. And I didn't think about it too much until March of 2016, when I traveled to Iraq for the very first time. I was there to report on the ongoing battle against ISIS and the siege of Mosul, which was then in its early days. I spent several days near the city of Suleimaniyah in Iraqi Kurdistan, visiting camps filled with Yazidi refugees. These men and women were members of a religious minority, neither Christian nor Islamic, that was targeted by ISIS for annihilation and enslavement. During the caliphate's days of expansion, its soldiers poured into the towns and villages around Mount Sinjar, the holy mountain of the Yazidis. ISIS massacred men and boys. They enslaved women and girls. The Yazidis have been targeted for genocide many, many times over the past few centuries. ISIS targeted them in part because their women were considered famously beautiful. And since they were neither Muslims nor people of the book, Christians or Jewish folks, they could be taken as sex slaves under the sick interpretation of Islam practiced by the caliphate. The story I had heard on the news was that President Obama and the United States Air Force intervened to stop this genocide. ISIS's advance was halted by airstrikes, allowing the Yazidis to flee up Mount Sinjar. Food had been dropped to sustain them. It was a good story, that rare tale of a timely U.S. intervention to halt a genocide. But once I started talking to survivors of the massacre, dozens and dozens of them, a different story emerged. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time. 
and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. The U.S. airstrikes had helped, and so had the food drops. But everyone I spoke to was emphatic that what had really saved them was not the U.S. Air Force. It was the men and women of the YPG, the YPJ, and the PKK. The story of Rojava is, unfortunately, a story with very many acronyms, and I will do my best to stop them from getting confusing. The YPG is a Kurdish acronym that translates to People's Protection Units. It is a mixed male-female force, although the vast majority of its fighters are men. Most Kurds call the YPG the Yepega. The YPJ are the Women's Protection Units. These two militias together compose the bulk of the Syrian Democratic Forces. They are the core of the Rojavan military. In 2014, the Iraqi Kurdish military, the Peshmerga, abandoned the Yazidis and fled from the Islamic State. As one survivor told me, nobody helped the Yazidis but the Yepiga. And while they were still fighting a desperate battle against ISIS in Syria, the people of Rojava diverted troops to invade Iraq, punch a hole in ISIS's lines, and rescue roughly 35,000 Yazidis from near certain annihilation. Hearing all this got me really interested. I started reading more. I learned that the YPG, the YPJ, and the whole Rojavan experiment had only gotten started thanks to the help of a terrorist group called the PKK, or the Kurdistan Workers' Party. See what I mean about acronyms? The story's filthy with them. We'll talk about the PKK a little more later, but in short, the U.S. government and the Turkish government consider them to be a terrorist group. Other nations around the world disagree and consider them to be more of an insurgent army, fighting for Kurdish independence from the Turkish government. Depending on where you stand, both descriptors are actually pretty fair. I wound up covering Iraq two more times over the next year in order to cover the fighting against ISIS in Mosul. With every trip I made, I'd heard more and more about the strange things happening in Rojava. 
the story percolated out, drip by drip. Most of the detailed coverage of the Rojavan political system was still confined to left-wing sources, but the details had solidified a bit, and I started to run into scholarly publications too. In 2016, I came across the book Revolution in Rojava, a very dense analysis of what was happening in the area. Now, finally, I had hard data to go with the lurid, praiseful stories I'd come across on the internet. What I read only made what was happening in Rojava sound more incredible and enticing. I learned about the women's houses, buildings established by the new government and towns and villages they controlled. These were places where women could go for help escaping from abusive relationships, accessing education, or getting job training. In some communities, the divorce rate leapt to more than 50% almost overnight. I grew more and more convinced that something very interesting was happening in northeast Syria, and over the next two years, I committed myself to visiting. Getting to Rojava was easier said than done, though. There are no commercially available airports in that part of Syria. The people of the region were still considered rebels by the Assad regime, so I couldn't just fly into Damascus either. The only safe way into Rojava was across the Tigris, through the Iraqi border. It was not an easy or an inexpensive journey to take. It took time to get my career and finances into a position where visiting was even a possibility, and while I waited and watched from a distance, the situation on the ground in Rojava continued to evolve. In October of 2017, Raqqa was liberated by the Syrian Democratic Forces. Raqqa is a large city in Syria that became the capital of the Islamic State for several years. The YPG and YPJ did the bulk of the fighting to retake it from ISIS, supported by U.S. artillery and air power. But once the caliphate's territorial holdings collapsed, the United States reduced its support of the SDF, the majority Kurdish militias it had previously backed. The Turkish government considered the YPG and the YPJ, which made up the bulk of the Syrian Democratic Forces, to be nothing more than Kurdish terrorist groups, and they wanted to wipe them out. In January of 2018, the Turkish government launched Operation Olive Branch, and their soldiers invaded the Kurdish-majority city of Afrin in Rojava. At this point, the United States still provided air cover and military aid to the SDF, but they withdrew their protection from the area around Afrin. The Turkish government began an ethnic cleansing campaign against the Kurds there, bulldozing cemeteries, confiscating homes and businesses, and moving in Arabs to change the demographics. Many saw the invasion of Afrin as a grim prelude to what would happen to all of Rojava when the Trump administration finally withdrew its support and American soldiers. I began to feel that, perhaps, there was a ticking clock on my chances to see this thing with my own eyes. By that point, the cause of the Rojavan Revolution had been taken up by left-wing movements around the world. When I visited Athens in early 2018, I saw Protect Afrin stickers up on light poles throughout the city. One of my friends in Dallas held fundraisers for the Kurdish Red Crescent, a humanitarian aid organization in the region. On left-wing media, the story of Rojava attained mythic proportions. One representative example is this episode of the now-defunct podcast The Guillotine, at the time, a popular far-left news and politics show. I don't know. You keep waiting around for a revolution. These motherfuckers are walking around with anarchist symbols painted on walls, hammers and sickles painted on walls, AK-47s. They're literally fighting against states trying to destroy them. They're trying to create gender equality. They're putting property in common. They've eliminated fucking prisons and cops. I mean, what, what more? What, what if this movement is too complicated for you and, and not pure enough for you to get involved in, you're going to be waiting all goddamn day. 
Now, I knew a lot of that had to be wrong. For one thing, Rojava definitely had prisons, and there were numerous stories about the ones where they kept captured ISIS fighters. But at least some of the idealistic anarchist wet dream stuff was, in fact, written into the Rojavan constitution. Here's how it starts. In pursuit of freedom, justice, dignity, and democracy, and led by principles of equality and environmental sustainability, the Charter proclaims a new social contract based upon mutual and peaceful coexistence and understanding between all strands of society. It protects fundamental human rights and liberties and reaffirms the people's right to self-determination. This constitution declared all cantons, which are essentially states in the autonomous regions, to be founded upon the principle of local self-government. Article 23 of the constitution is particularly compelling to me. It declares, Everyone has the right to express their ethnic, cultural, linguistic, and gender rights, and everyone has the right to live in a healthy environment based on ecology balance. Under Article 26, all residents of the autonomous regions have the inherent right to life. Execution is banned in Rojava. Article 27 guarantees women the inviolable right to participate in political, economic, and social life. Some parts of the Constitution do run counter to the far-left fantasies about Rojava. The Charter establishes a police force, the Asaish, and explicitly guarantees the right to private property. But it also guarantees the rights of children, prohibits monopolies, enshrines labor rights, and guarantees a minimum representation of 40% for either sex in the judiciary. In short, the Rojavan Constitution represents what would be a shockingly progressive platform in the United States, let alone a chunk of rural northeast Syria. And this constitution was not just a pie-in-the-sky dream cooked up by some left-wing radical smoking weed in a basement. At its height, three to four million people lived under this system, and more than two million people still do today. And right now, you're probably wondering, how in the hell did any of this happen in the first place? That, my friends, is a weird and winding story. Like everything in the Middle East, the origins of what's happening in Rojava stretch back many centuries. But for the sake of brevity, we will start with the tale of a fella named Abdullah Ajalan. Now, Ajalan is one of those folks who gets labeled as both a terrorist and a freedom fighter, depending on who you ask. And to make matters more confusing, both of those terms are pretty accurate descriptions of the guy. He was born in 1948, probably. That's essentially a guess because Ajalan was born in a tiny village in eastern Turkey, Omerli, and it was no one's priority to keep track of birth certificates back then. He was born part Turkish and part Kurdish. In the eyes of the Turkish government, though, that Kurdish part of him didn't exist. From its beginning, the government of Turkey has had a weird obsession with denying the existence of non-Turkish peoples native to Anatolia. When Ajalan was born, it was a crime to even speak the Kurdish language. He got a job working in civil service, and eventually started teaching political science at the University of Ankara. As the years went by, Ajalan found himself more and more frustrated by the outright denial of Kurdish identity in Turkey. To give you an idea of exactly how bad it is, in 1991 Leyla Zana became the first Kurdish woman to win a seat in the Turkish parliament. After she took her oath, she spoke this single sentence in Kurdish. I take this oath for the brotherhood between the Turkish people and the Kurdish people. Now at that point, 1991, Kurdish was still illegal to speak in public. It had only been legalized to speak in private earlier that year. In videos of her speech, you can hear the immediate, almost violent response to her words. Hey, 
Layla was not jailed immediately for her actions because she had parliamentary immunity, but her brief Kurdish speech set into motion a sequence of events that, in 1994, led to her arrest and imprisonment for 10 years. This all happened in the 90s, when Turkey was working towards EU membership. In the 1960s and 70s, when Ajalan was a young man, even speaking Kurdish in private was illegal. And as he grew more politically aware, Abdullah began nursing a deep rage over how his people were being treated. In 1974, he met up with between 7 and 11 other young men who were furious at the status quo. They put together plans to build a Kurdish leftist organization, one unlike any political party that existed in Turkey. Ajalan was elected the leader of this political youth group, which was initially just called the Apocular, or the Followers of Apo. Apo is Ajalan's nickname. It means uncle, and it's a word I was to hear hundreds of times throughout my days in Rojava. Over the next several years, the Apocular evolved into the PKK, which was officially established in 1978. It was initially a Marxist-Leninist movement whose aim was the overthrow of the Turkish government. In its early days, the PKK feuded with other left-wing political parties, at times fighting their members in the streets and carrying out assassinations. Gradually, the movement morphed into a ragged guerrilla army, executing acts of sabotage and inciting riots against the Turkish state. In the early 1980s, the PKK launched a mass violence campaign aimed at destabilizing the government. By 1984, this had erupted into a full-fledged insurgency, and the PKK were as vicious and brutal as any other insurgent movement in history. They frequently killed civilians who did not support them. The vast majority of their targets were Turkish soldiers or police, but they did not hesitate to murder innocent people who stood, even non-violently, against them. Throughout this period, Abdullah Ajalan and his fellow leaders fled to the safety of Syria and dug in there. The Assad regime was hostile to Turkey, and more than happy to sponsor rebels on their soil. For nearly 20 years, Ajalan and his comrades ran one of the most brutal insurgent campaigns in history, while relatively safe themselves under Hafez al-Assad's protection. Tens of thousands of people were killed, mostly by the Turkish government. But Apo was not squeamish about sending huge numbers of people to their deaths. And as in nearly all wars, most of the dead were civilians, normal people caught in the crossfire. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Up to this point, the story of the PKK and Abdullah Ajalan sounds like the story of many other insurgent groups and their leaders. But there was something that separated Abdullah Ajalan from his blood-soaked peers. He was capable of admitting his failures. In the early 1990s, the PKK realized that their campaigns of indiscriminate violence had cost them the support of many civilians in the rural Turkish villages where they operated. Ajalan ordered an end to the targeting of civilians. Abdullah's ideas about women were also evolving in this period. The first PKK women's organization had been formed in 1986. Seven years later, in 1994, Ajalan created the first all-female military unit. Now, this was not entirely a new idea. Iranian Kurdish rebel groups had experimented with female military units back in the early 1980s. But Ajalan did more than just crib ideas from his fellow revolutionaries. He committed himself to fighting for improvements in women's rights, along with his bloody guerrilla struggle. Ajalan, the unquestioned leader of a violent authoritarian insurgent army, started asking his men to cook for their wives. He wanted women's time freed up for armed training and ideological study. Ajalan's political views shifted considerably throughout the 1980s and 1990s. While once a committed Marxist-Leninist dedicated to the global struggle of the proletariat, Ajalan softened into more of a moderate socialist. In 1996, he named Germany as an example of a socialist state he supported. In 1999, Abdullah Ajalan was captured on the lam in Kenya thanks to a multinational intelligence operation. He was jailed on an island prison named Imrali in the Sea of Marmara, and he remains there to this day. Alone in his small cell, guarded by a thousand men, he began to delve into Sumerian mythology and history textbooks focused on Neolithic humanity. He grew convinced that the root of all authoritarianism, the essential moment at which human civilization had gone wrong, was the domination of women by men. Prison seemed to have wrought a permanent change over Ajalan. Whether this was a coldly calculated plea for mercy from a brutal terrorist warlord, or the very real evolution of a man reconsidering his past, Abdullah's new ideas had a profound impact on the PKK, for he was still their leader. Ajalan wrote book after book about his new theories. He smuggled them out of prison by hiding them as legal briefs, sent to the lawyers who were permanently appealing his court case. As the years went by, Ajalan's politics evolved further. He came across the work of Murray Bookchin, a Jewish-American writer and anarchist philosopher who, like Ajalan, had once been a Marxist. 
Bookchin had been one of the very first people, back in 1965, to begin warning humanity about climate change. He believed this looming crisis required a fundamental shift in reordering of society, away from capitalism, and towards a less destructive, more egalitarian society. Libertarian municipalism is the system he eventually proposed for this reordering. In brief, libertarian municipalism calls for a radical participatory democracy, with every person having an equal say over the matters that affect them directly. Local communities in this system should govern themselves directly through citizens' assemblies and elect recallable representatives who coordinate and communicate with other communities. The goal is to prevent situations like we have in the modern United States, where voters in a city make laws to govern the lives of people in vastly different rural communities, and vice versa. Bookchin believed this system would also make it easier to form an ecologically responsible society. No community would vote to have, say, an incredibly toxic oil refinery in their own backyard. Bookchin wrote in 1991 that, Libertarian municipalism is not merely a political strategy. It is an effort to work from latent or incipient democratic possibilities toward a radically new configuration of society itself, a communitarian society oriented towards meeting basic human needs, responding to ecological imperatives, and developing a new ethics based on sharing and cooperation. That it involves a consistently independent form of politics is a truism. More important, it involves a redefinition of politics, a return to the word's original Greek meaning as the management of the community, or polis, by reasons of direct face-to-face assemblies of the people in the formulation of public policy and based on an ethics of complementarily and solidarity. Locked up in Imrali, Bookchin's ideas merged with Ajalon's own theories about history and feminism. He named his ideal system democratic confederalism, and published an essay laying out how it should work in 2011. This became one of the foundational documents of the political system in Rojava. And so, through this very unlikely chain of custody, the ideas of a fringe American anarchist thinker became the foundation of a system that more than three million people live in today over in Syria. It is easily one of the unlikeliest things that's ever happened. From my perspective as a journalist, judging how real everything in Rojava was was complicated by the impressive level of PR savvy that can be found among the Kurds in Iraq and Syria. It started back in 1988, when Saddam Hussein began gassing Iraqi Kurds, and world attention was drawn to their plight by Iranian and British journalists who filled the massacres from the air. Ever since, Kurdish movements have had an intense appreciation and a deep gut understanding of how the power of the global press can be harnessed to help their movements for liberation. And so, as the SDF advanced against ISIS, they did so with the aid of a brilliant social media campaign, which spread footage of the beautiful young women of the YPG squaring off against fundamentalist militias. Regular Twitter videos of liberated towns showed women discarding their veils in niqabs. This sort of content was true, these things were actually happening, but it was also a targeted propaganda campaign aimed at warming the hearts of liberals and conservatives alike back in the West. The Goodwill campaign succeeded in drumming up support for Ojava around the planet. It also drew in hundreds of international volunteers, mostly young men and women from around Europe and North America who traveled to Rojava to fight and to help build a new egalitarian society. The stories of these international volunteers created something of a sensation, particularly within the global left-wing media ecosystem. The revolutionaries of Rojava positioned themselves as the tip of the spear in the global battle against creeping fascism. 
In late 2017, after the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, anarchist international SDF volunteers posted pictures of themselves with an anti-fascist action flag, the Antifa flag you might have seen at rallies, and the words, From Mojava to Charlottesville, Solidarity with All Anti-Fascists, Avenge Heather Heyer. Some of this messaging was carefully coordinated by different organizations in Rojava, like the Syrian Democratic Forces, but a lot of it, including the Avenge Heather Heyer photo, was ad hoc and grassroots, a product of the fact that this revolution genuinely drew in large numbers of committed leftists from around the world. These people saw themselves as inheritors of a great anti-fascist tradition, the spiritual successors of the leftist partisans who first fought fascism during the Spanish Civil War, and the members of the French, German, and Italian resistance movements during World War II. Kurdish fighters in Syria began to adopt foreign anti-fascist anthems as the soundtrack to their revolution. This ranged from revamped versions of old Irish militant folk music, to covers of Rage Against the Machine songs, to the old Italian anti-fascist anthem, Bella Ciao. Bella Ciao means goodbye beautiful, and in its original incarnation, it was a protest song by female laborers in the paddy fields of northern Italy. After Mussolini came to power, a new version of the song was adopted by anti-fascist freedom fighters, and Bella Ciao grew into an international anthem of freedom and resistance. In Kurdish culture, the adoption of Bella Chow goes back to at least 2009, when Iranian Kurdish filmmaker Esan Fatahian made a YouTube video, which he dedicated to the Kurdish people and all people struggling for freedom. Fatahian felt a powerful emotional connection to the anti-fascist version of the song, which centers on a partisan waking up in the morning to find a fascist soldier at his door. The partisan in the song accepts his duty, which is to die a beautiful death struggling for freedom, and he expresses his hope that he will be buried in the mountains and a flower will bloom over his grave. Fatahian's own death came later in 2009, when the Iranian government executed him for being a member of a Kurdish militant group. In 2014, the Kurdish singer Chia Madani released the cover of Bella Chow that you just heard, set over video of the men and women of the YPG and J marching into battle against ISIS. The positioning of Rojava as part of this global struggle against fascism was simultaneously canny, an intelligent way to get international support, and also a large risk to their political support from some of the governments of the world. Anti-fascism is, shall we say, a touchy political stance in this part of the 21st century. In 2019, the histories of Italian and Kurdish anti-fascism and the history of the song Bella Ciao merged rather tragically in the death of Lorenzo Orsetti, Lorenzo was an Italian citizen, a cook, waiter, and sommelier from Florence who grew inspired by the Rojavan Revolution and joined the SDF as a foreign volunteer. He died fighting ISIS in March of 2019, and during his funeral service, men and women sang Bella Ciao in both Italian and Kurdish. In the spring of 2019, the stars finally aligned to allow me to visit. My podcast, Behind the Bastards, took off that year. Right around the same time, I wrote several articles in the wake of the Christchurch massacre that went very viral. I launched a fundraiser and asked my fans to support my desire to do more conflict journalism. To my utter shock, they raised more than $40,000. I now had the opportunity and the funding. 
All I needed was a way to get into Rojava and get the access I needed to learn the truth about its system. I reached out to a colleague of mine, Jake Hanrahan. Jake is a former reporter from Vice and currently an independent journalist. He has a podcast called Popular Front that focuses on the geeky details of modern conflict. Back in 2015, Jake had found himself as the only Western journalist in southern Turkey during an uprising by a Kurdish youth militia, the YDGH, or Yedigahash. It started when he received a message from a Turkish contact of his, telling him that the YDGH had taken over a small city in southern Turkey named Jizra. Well, 2015, I was there in January when that happened. By the summer, all it was total war. So, like, they, they, you know, all the different towns are basically set up YDGH franchises. And it went from being, like, the youth going, like, yeah, we've got some rifles, which, you know, everybody does down there, to the PKK coming, the adults coming down from the mountains where they kind of hide out and training them up and being like, this is how you build a bomb. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. So I was like, fuck it. Went there, straight there, and, you know, with two of my colleagues. And, yeah, man, it was crazy. We just saw, like, PKK guerrillas in, like, civilian clothes being like we're the ydgh and it was like what you're 35 <laughs> like you know what i mean like you're not the ydgh but then we were seeing like you know 18 year olds becoming like pure militants you know so yeah that's kind of my history with that film with them as you know that went bad we got arrested and sent to jail for a little bit jake and his crew spent several harrowing days in a turkish prison incarcerated with a mix of refugees and isis fighters he was obviously freed and returned to England. The whole experience sparked in him a fascination with Rojava. He started studying the movement and making connections to the people in the area. Since he'd been arrested covering a Kurdish uprising, he had sort of an in that most Western journalists lacked. It was a little like having done time for the mob, even though as a journalist covering the YDGH, Jake had not been entirely sympathetic to the movement. In fact, we were actually questioning him. I was like, why are you shooting like police officers? Like, they're not you know, they're just policing the area. It's their job, you know. So to be honest, like some of it was quite critical. Between Jake's connections in Syria and my friends in Iraq, we were able to put together a rough plan for getting into Rojava. It was sort of unclear up until the last moment whether we'd be able to cross the border legally with the permission of the Iraqi government or if we'd have to pay a smuggler to sneak us in. Either way, both Jake and I were committed to trying. So, in July, I plopped down $3,000 on airfare. I had to be careful to make sure I didn't accidentally book Jake a layover in Istanbul. He is, quite literally, a wanted man in Turkey. Jake's main job was to find us a fixer. And fixers are a mix between a journalist, an interpreter, a tour guide, and a security advisor. Or, at least, the good ones are. They help foreign journalists find stories, gain access, and conduct interviews in war zones. The quality of your fixer largely determines the quality of your story. When I was working in Mosul, I'd had the extreme fortune of working with two of the very best fixers in Iraq, Sangar Khalil and Ayar Rasul. Most of the journalists working in Syria were all going after the same stories, interviews with captured ISIS fighters and ISIS brides. World media only really wanted stories from Syria that involved ISIS. I wanted to capture something different, an exploration of the Rojapan revolution, of this women's war, and how it had transformed society. To get that story, we were going to need the very best fixer we could find. A couple weeks before our flight, Jake reached out to me with a name, Chabat Abbas. His sources said she was good, very good, but neither of us had met her. Picking Chabat was a roll of the dice, as these things always are. Thankfully, it would turn out to be one of the luckiest rolls of my life. For the trip from Iraq to Rojava, we leaned on my old friend Sangar. 
I'd spent days watching him smooth-talk Iraqi generals into letting us embed with troops at the bleeding edge of the fighting in Mosul. Jake and I figured he could probably talk his way through any issues we had at the border. With all that settled, the only thing left to do was to actually fly to the Middle East. I'm on my way first to Dubai, where I have a 15-hour layover. So about 15 hours in the air and about a 15-hour layover. The nice thing about that is that the hotels in Dubai are really luxurious and very cheap. The journey to Iraq from the west coast of the United States is not a simple one. It started with a four-hour flight from my home to Los Angeles, and then a one-hour layover, and then a 13-hour flight to Dubai, and then a 15-hour layover, and then a short hop to Suleimania. I had a lot of time for reading during all that, and during the final flight of my journey, I finished reading George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia. It's a book about that famous author's time as a volunteer soldier fighting against fascists in the Spanish Civil War. George Orwell had rather complex political views. Most people would probably sum them up as broadly socialist. But more than anything, he was anti-authoritarian. So in the late 1930s, he traveled to Spain to fight alongside anarchists and communists, battling desperately to stem the onslaught of the deadliest ideology mankind has ever produced. In the book, he described his attitude in going over this way. I had promised myself to kill one fascist. After all, if each of us killed one, they would soon be extinct. Sadly for Orwell and the world, the struggle of the Spanish anti-fascists ended in defeat. And it was a defeat that began within their own ranks. The anarchists who had started the struggle against Francisco Franco were outmaneuvered by social democrats and communists. Many of them were purged violently by the people who should have been their comrades. Orwell watched in horror as his friends and battle buddies were arrested and executed. He barely escaped Spain with his own life intact. Musing over the tragedy months later, he wrote, The fact is that every war suffers a kind of progressive degradation with every month that it continues, because things such as individual liberty and a truthful press are simply not compatible with military efficiency. The situation in Rojava has more than a few parallels with the Spanish Civil War. And as my plane descended into Suleimania Airport in Iraqi Kurdistan, I couldn't help but wonder if I too was stumbling into the last days of an equally beautiful, doomed effort. The Women's War is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. 
Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.